Welcome to the Jesus and Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock, your host, and today we have Graham Hooten here for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Graham, tell us a little bit about yourself. Kev, I'm super stoked to be doing with the, this with you. It's been a long time coming. Um, yeah, for those of you who, who are listening for the first time, which I guess is everybody, because uh, this is the first podcast, uh, <laughs> Kevin and I met at Davidson College, uh, where we lived together for one glorious semester, uh, and we actually, I think, really bonded and became good friends when we took that independent study with Dr. Campbell um, on Harry Potter. And so I think Kevin and I both share a passion for finding the gospel in popular culture and specifically in movies, Um, and so it's something I know we've, we've enjoyed having conversations about over the years. Yeah, something we've bonded over for sure. So you graduated 2020. You had coronavirus to deal with your senior spring. Yeah, 100%. Um, Yeah. I will say that uh, I do miss Davidson, and I miss the time that we had living together. I think we had a lot of fun in our our F apartment. And so uh, I'm glad to be in North Carolina now, full-time resident. Chicago's great, but the weather here is just is glorious, even in Corona. So, understandable. So, let's talk about your experience with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone specifically. When was the first time you saw it? Do you remember that? How many times do you think you've seen it? And what sticks out? What's memorable? So, I was a, a Harry Potter adopter, probably in like the third grade. Um, I I don't even remember my first experience reading one book. I kind of remember my experience collectively reading all of the books and camping out in front of the bookstore when Half-Blood Prince came out and like literally sitting down and reading it in like a day or two. And so when I think about Sorcerer's Stone, it's really just the gateway for me into the Harry Potter world. Um, And, you know, we're talking third grade, so I would have been, what, like eight, nine years old, and here I am, a 23-year-old adult still having conversations about it. Um, And so I think I read the book back then. I probably saw the movie a couple of years later uh, and started going to the movie premieres probably around Half-Blood Prince, whenever that came out, maybe like late uh, 2000s. Got it. My experience with The Sorcerer's Stone is quite different. I did not know what it was until my sophomore spring at Davidson, studying for some economics exams with Jack Lang, Annie Beresheim, and Michael Freeman. We were taking up a study break and agreed to watch a movie. They decided to watch Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone against my will. I decided to watch it, and that was the beginning of a romantic relationship with the Harry Potter saga that I carry to this day. Capital R romantic, or... Lowercase r. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I guess lowercase r, you know, we went on a lot of dates that week. It was mm-hmm. a first date Thursday night, second date Friday night. I think I was done with the entire series within a week. Lindsay Ruffalo was also a big part of my fandom uh, exploration. So that's kind of my experience. I remember loving it. I remember really enjoying sort of the mystery genre of it as well, the sort of whodunit. Um, that I think people forget that that's a big part of the Harry Potter genre. So there's actually mm-hmm. a mystery, especially in those earlier yeah specifically sorcerer's stone yeah so this is the first podcast we've done for jesus and movies but to give you a basic sense of structure 
we're just going to break down specific moments where we feel like the gospel is really jumping off the screen for us. They don't necessarily need to be big, overarching plot moments that can be as small as a simple line of dialogue, even a line of dialogue taken out of context, if that is really what's hitting home. So Graham and I are each going to pick four. We're going to alternate, and then we're going to do a little bit of a free-for-all Q&A at the end between the two of us, and then we're going to hand out some awards at the end. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Graham, give us a gospel moment in the Sorcerer's Stone. So with my first overall draft pick, uh, I'm taking one of the most memeable moments from the movie, uh, and it's the classic Hagrid line, You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. Which actually was not said in the books. Uh, I believe it was like rephrased a little bit. Um, but one of the reasons I love this moment is because it's the conference of identity, right? Like Hagrid knows the history of Harry and his parents in the wizarding world. And like Harry has spent you know, the first 10 years of his life miserably living with the Dursleys with no real identity, uh, feeling kind of like the lowest of the low. And in this moment is like when Harry's world changes. Um, because for the first time he's told that like he is designed for something that is bigger than himself. And he's actually a part of this grander narrative that he's not even heard about. Um, and so like, I think the cool thing is that Harry has always been the chosen one, right? Like from the moment that Voldemort, uh, tried to kill him and his mother gave her life, uh, protecting Harry, like Harry became the chosen one, but he lived pretty much his entire childhood up, up until this point, like not knowing that. Um, and I think there's like so much gospel in that, um, in the sense that like we are designed to be in relationship with the father, right? Like we are designed, um, uh, I think like Ephesians two, eight was eight through 10 was kind of like what I was looking at specifically, uh, in context with this scene. It says, for it is by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so, like, Harry's done nothing to earn this opportunity to be the chosen one. Um, but I just love that moment when he, like, his eyes are open and he discovers this purpose, really, um, that has been, like, set forth from the very moment of his birth. Uh, and he's lived so much of his life in ignorance of it. Mm, that's powerful. And it's really when Hagrid says, you're a wizard, Harry, that's when the conference of identity is really clicking for you or for Harry or for Hagrid or all of the above. I think all of the above... Um, and I, I don't know, like, I think one of the cool ways is, like, things is the way in which Hagrid says it. Like, Hagrid has absolute 100% confidence in who Harry is. And he's like, how could you not know this? Like, how could you not know that you are the chosen one and that you are a wizard? Like, it is unfathomable to Hagrid that Harry would live his entire life in ignorance. And I think especially as, like, uh, believers, like, witnessing to other people, like, that'd be a really cool posture to take, right? Like, how could you not know this? Not in, like, an arrogant way, but, like, you know you are created for something so much more than the life that you are living currently. Um, and, like, to have that desire for other people to experience that. Um, I don't I just think that's really cool. Yeah, that's a great one. And honestly, a great segue into the second pick of the draft, per se. Uh, so the moment when... Harry's living at the awful, awful Dursleys, and the owls begin flying in, and Harry's Hogwarts letters are just pouring in through the mail clicker thing in the door and then through the chimney. 
you know, it starts off as one, and then it's one the next day, and then it's like tens, and then it's hundreds, and then it's thousands, and then it's just this uncontrollable chaotic flurry of mm-hmm. letters that are all identical, all inviting Harry to Hogwarts. And you just really get this sense of like, this is going to happen whether Vernon Dursley wants it or not, whether Harry wants it or not, like no matter what, like it is just like willed that like these letters are going to make their way into the Dursley's home. And as the owls pile up, to me, the parallel it strikes is sort of how God relentlessly pursues the hearts of his people and the salvation of his people. Um, And this is where we get into sort of um, challenging theological territory, sort of as, as the same as what you're saying, but like, if you think about sort of the active agent and the passive agent in this equation, like it really is sort of Hogwarts or maybe Dumbledore that's really like pursuing Harry before Harry even knows that he's a wizard or that he was destined to go to this wizard's academy, you know? So there is kind of a deeper question there of like, what does that mean theologically for Harry? Like, does he have a choice in the matter? Uh, And that's challenging. But just to kind of ground this in some scripture, let me take you through a few passages that kind of just come to my mind and my heart when I sort of see these letters just like pouring in. So the first is Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So this kind of this idea that God is outside of time or at least ahead of us in some sense and sort of knows our days before we live them, to me that sort of has a similar parallel to what we see. And then Ephesians 1, uh, one chapter before Grams, you sort of have more of this kind of Reformed theology, predestination type language. Um, Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Uh, Skimming down here at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And if you wanted to keep going, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And really this whole chapter, kind of similar ideas and language, but this idea that like, Harry is going to go to Hogwarts before Harry even knows what Hogwarts is. Like, mm-hmm. he's totally kind of the passive agent in that. And yes, there is some decision on his part and some acceptance. And maybe this is something we hash out in the Q&A later in the podcast. But to me, this is a pretty clear parallel. And then lastly, this scripture I'll take in a little bit of a different light. So those two sort of getting at more of like the sequence of events, sort of paralleling the sequence of salvation. This getting more at just like the character and the why maybe of it all. This is Romans 8, uh, starting with verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to set will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just kind of a fireworks verse that's basically saying there is nothing that will stop God's love from getting to you. It is just too powerful. We're talking about a divine, spiritual, otherworldly love. And that's kind of what I see when it's just like, it's not three letters. It's not six letters in the mailbox. It's 60,000 letters that you're going to literally drown in if you try to fight this. Like that is the, the mm-hmm. power and the quantity and the, the force of God's redeeming love for his people. So I know a little bit overboard maybe on the scripture there, but I want us to feel like this is really grounded in real things. This isn't just two guys' opinions on 
a scene. You know, th- th- these are real parallels mm-hmm. that we see because we're in scripture. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's funny. I think you actually skipped over the part in Psalm 139 that I pulled in relation to this specific scene uh it's verses seven through eight where can i go from your spirit where can i flee from your presence if i go up to the heavens you are there if i make my bed in the depths you are there um and so again paralleling that sort of relentless pursuit right like a god who in the gospels is described as leaving behind the 99 to go and find the one um and another piece of scripture i think that stood out to me was revelation 320 um, and it says, like, this is Jesus speaking, like, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Um, and so literally, like, the theoret- like the theoretical or, I guess, metaphorical knocking at the door, uh, basically until the door comes down. Again, like, I think it's interesting. We could kind of talk about the theology of Harry's choice here, but it's it's a relentless pursuit in so many different ways. And uh, I totally agree. I mean, I love I love that moment. Yeah, that's a great catch from Psalm 139 and even better scripture than I had picked with the literal door metaphor. So well done. Take us to your second of four. (laughs) Okay, I'm also I'm trying not to uh, to step on our our awards um, for later, even though I'm sure we'll kind of, um, you know, clash clash a little bit. and so this is this specific instance I don't think is necessarily rooted in like exact verses of scripture, but like broader picture is interesting. Um, and it's kind of when Harry goes to Ollivander's uh, and he uh, kind of has the moment where like the wand chooses the wizard, the wizard chooses the wand, and, and uh, the wand that Harry ends up sharing has, uh, you know, physical makeups that are uh, kind of parallel to Voldemort. Right. And so like there's from the very beginning, um, Harry is kind of being framed or Voldemort, I guess, is being framed in context with his relationship with Harry. And they kind of share these very common characteristics like uh, Voldemort is the embodiment of pure evil. And Harry, in many ways, is the embodiment of good, even though he's flawed. And so um, I think like there are certain properties, right, like certain properties of divine nature that the two of these uh, share and so the idea that like um, especially in like a, you know the idea of atonement that like Jesus has to share very real human characteristics with the very humans that he is trying to save uh, and so like the idea that Jesus him, himself like even though he is divine is is vulnerable to death and actually experiences death um, and like had he not uh encountered and ultimately conquered death like he would actually not be uh like fulfilling his intended purpose and so uh it's a little bit more of a i guess a a vague idea but like um the idea of like death is so i think essential both in the gospel and in the harry potter series Uh, and so it's important that like the two of them kind of share that parallel yeah that's a great one and honestly when you started with the wand chooses the wizard or does the wizard choose the wand you took that in a totally different direction than i thought mm-hmm. you would so <laughs> and that's ultimately a thing we're going to see a lot over the next six books and seven movies right like that that wand connection gets played up a lot in death right, yeah. so that's a good one um okay i'm going to move on to my second overall pick of the draft so i guess it's actually the fourth overall pick uh and that is hermione's oculus Reparo mm. to harry on the hogwarts express first time we meet hermione 
This is the first interaction of literally hundreds of interactions. Oculus repair room. That's better, isn't it? Holy cricket, you're Harry Potter. I'm Hermione Granger. But here's the idea. Harry's glasses are fractured or slightly broken. They're impaired in some way. And Harry and Ron are sitting on one side of the little cubby caboose thing. And Hermione kind of invites herself in very sort of uh, ambitiously in some ways, Mm -hmm. since none of them know each other yet, sits down on the other side. And so Hermione fixes Harry's glasses for him. And I think this really works on two levels for me. For one, it is the fact that Hermione knows who Harry is even before Harry knows who Hermione is. And this is sort of similar to what we've talked about so far, but sort of the sequence of things. But this idea that like Harry is just like born into this world where he's famous and he doesn't even know it. This idea that like Hermione knows all about Harry before they've even met and before Harry knows anything about Hermione. Hermione's just all over it. You're Harry Potter. And that kind of parallels this idea that like God knows us before we know him. Kind of the same thing we talked about earlier. So I'm just Mm going to move on to the next element, which is maybe more important, at least relative to the scene. Uh, The very basic metaphor of vision and sight being restored. The fact that Hermione is able to help Harry see better physically is going to be a metaphor for the way their relationship, I think, will function over the next six books and seven movies. And this is something that goes really deeply into biblical roots. I've pulled several passages here so you can get kind of the scope of it. For one, the Apostle Paul is kind of converted in this way, this restoration of sight. And there's a pretty provocative passage here in Acts 9. So first, we meet this guy Saul, and he's a persecutor of Christians. This is first century uh, ancient Near East. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, and the way being a name for Christians back then, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And so... That's just the first nine verses of the story. Saul goes blind. He's no Mm -hmm. longer able to see anything. This is literal physical blindness. And then this guy Ananias is going to have this vision in the night, again, sort of playing on this theme of visions. And Jesus is going to say to him in a vision, uh, go, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. The vision is specifically that Ananias would help Saul regain his sight. And Ananias doesn't want to because Saul is this famous Christian persecutor. And But eventually he goes. Jesus kind of doubles down and says, you will go. And then listen to how this ends. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And that's really like the beginning of 
the authorship the authorship of like a lot of the New Testament. Luke actually writes more of the New Testament than Paul, but Paul writes a lot. He writes more mm-hmm. books. And so like it all begins with this, like a man who's blind regaining his sight. And it also has uh, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament lineage as well. Exodus 33 here, we see that Moses is actually not able to physically see God. Moses said, please show me your glory, Lord. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this idea that the God of the Bible in the Hebrew Bible, the time before Christ, God could not be physically seen. And it's only through Jesus is the first time that fully God persona can be physically seen. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, this is the new thing. Like the gospel is vision. Think about the hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Like this is the idea throughout the Bible. And if that wasn't enough, we get these stories like John 9, where Jesus heals a blind man. Right. Um, and so it's just a narrative throughout the Bible, like the blind coming to see for the first time, not just physical sight, but as a metaphor for spiritual sight. And that is what I see with this Hermione moment where she's sort of like, Harry, let me help you see. And for the rest of the series and everything he does, she's going to be there. She's going to help him see things that he can't about himself, about his opponents, about the world around them, about romance. Uh, there's just going to be a lot of things. And this is kind of like the beginning of the all. It's just so exciting. I just can't even like channel my joy for this moment. Like this idea of like someone outside of you knowing more than you putting away the scales from your eyes and helping you to see what, what is really important, who you really are and what you're really called to be. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I, you know, I love the extrapolation. I think there's so much there and, and I would only just kind of continue to re-up what you said about vision in the Bible and uh, how, you know, there's the restoration of, of literal physical vision, like Jesus, you said, does in John 9, what happens with Paul. But obviously, there's a spiritual component of that, like having our eyes open to what is like actually true about God and what is true about ourselves. Um, and kind of as you were talking, another verse that came to mind was Colossians 1.15, that like Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And the importance that like Jesus the historical and physical figure plays in like the broader biblical narrative specifically with vision is like Jesus is like seeing the answer book. Right. And like all these questions of like restoration and like, how do we get back into being relationship, like right relationship with God? Like these are the questions that so much of the old Testament poses with like promises in scripture and Isaiah that like one day there's going to be a savior that is going to set this all straight and, uh, and I think like, I agree that Jesus, uh, you know, he both heals physical vision, but also himself is the vision, uh, to what has previously been made invisible by God. Yeah. Well said. I also think about all these verses in Paul's letters in the new Testament, where he's basically saying, uh, and the mystery has been revealed to you, uh, you know, a mystery that was veiled to previous generations has now been made known. Kind of this idea that the veiled has become unveiled, that what was once hidden can now be seen. Similar idea, different hmm. language. Uh, so that was a long one. Sorry for the runoff. <laughs> That's good. Head over to your third. Okay. Um, my third one, and again, this is a little bit, um, I guess it's maybe not rooted in like one specific piece of scripture, but it was something that kind of was interesting to me. Um, and it's kind of the contrast, um, the foil of like Harry and Draco, and what is like, how do they live in the world, and how do 
their individual experiences grow up and form the way that they see the world right and so you've got draco who's part of this um you know wizard family that is essentially you know slytherin royalty like draco has grown up believing that he's going to be the next great slytherin and then there's that great moment when the sorting hat comes in and before it even touches his head it's like slytherin like draco knows his fate um and he's kind of known nothing except for the magical world and and there are certain consequences that we see because of that like you know draco is one of the chief leaders of calling hermione eventually like a mudblood and like believing that there is some inherent superiority about himself relative to the rest of the students at hogwarts and honestly to the rest of uh wizards and witches all across you know the world but harry you know is this poor kid he lives in a cupboard he doesn't know that he comes from a magical family and so um i think that like because harry enters the wizarding world having experience being the least of these it fundamentally changes the way that he acts and behaves with students at hogwarts and the rest of the world around him and it's uh it's first timothy timothy 115 uh, it says here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so I think like that fundamentally changes the way that Harry looks at the world. He doesn't see himself as inherently superior to other people in the way that Draco does. He actually sees himself pretty lowly and is humbled. Um, and I think this kind of reflects the, the general gospel idea that Jesus shares is that the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Um, and especially um, it allows him to like love people who are maybe considered less than. So his relationship, I think, with Neville um, and even his relationship with Ron, not necessarily the most popular crowd, uh, but like Malfoy wouldn't dare associate with uh, people who are of such low social status. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus, a God who seeks and saves uh, the poor and the lost and the marginalized. And I don't know, I just love the way that like Harry looks at his friends, but it comes from the fundamental identity that he is the worst of sinners and he needs to be a part of this wizarding world more than anybody else does. That's so interesting because I, I love how you were able to pull out the biblical parallel because I think in a lot of ways it's the Harry Draco stuff that to me is the most counter-biblical content in hmm. Harry Potter. I've, and we'll get to this later, but to me there's a lot of sort of revenge glorification and sort of bending the rules I think J.K. Rowling does a great job of showing like how there are moral consequences to those decisions. Like when we see Draco take Neville's remember all and sort of fly up into the air and Harry like is quick to go after him. And remember Hermione's like, no way, Harry. <laughs> Harry, no way. You heard what Madame Hoop said. Besides, you don't even know how to fly. Trying to sort of restrain him and yet sort of like the juices are pumping and the rivalry is on. And we're going to see that rivalry continue over the next uh, gazillion chapters but but yeah I like how you're able to pull that out sort of the the contrast in their worldviews essentially and even the way that shot is visually poised the first time they meet with Draco sort of being on that high step looking down at Harry mm -hmm. who's like standing two steps below and he's sort of Draco extending his hand I can help you there Palta you know this sort of sense that like he is offering his services down to the lowly Harry even though he knows that Harry is kind of a big deal as we do yeah, and I wonder if there's even a little bit of prodigal son here, and obviously it might be a little bit of a stretch, but like Draco's like the guy who's always been with the father, right? He's the older brother of somebody who's like always known his inheritance and like 
always taken part in that and even though harry never necessarily like makes the active decision to step away from his father like he by forces that are outside of his control is like brought apart from that relationship and there's a lot of envy i think on draco's end just like there is in the older brother and the prodigal son story um because he's like why should we celebrate him when i've kind of been here all along um Mm. and obviously you know malfoy's got more evil intentions like explicitly than the older brother but there definitely is that pride element i totally agree that's a great comparison too that older brother younger brother contrast moving on i want to talk about the scene when harry is chosen to play quidditch you'll be the youngest seeker uh in the house of gryffindor in a hundred years i think or does he say a thousand years i can't remember uh we'll play the quote for you (laughs) heard harry potter's the new gryffindor seeker i always knew he'd do well seeker but first years never make the house teams you must be the youngest quidditch player in a century according to mcgonagall hey well done harry woods just told us friend george on the team too beaters our job is to make sure that you don't get blooded up too bad can't make any promises, of course. Rough game, Quidditch. Brutal, but no one's died in years. Someone will vanish occasionally. But they'll turn up in a month or two. <laughs> oh, go on, Harry. Quidditch is great. Best game there is. And you'll be great, too. But I've never even played Quidditch. What if I make a fool of myself? Harry doesn't think he can do it. He doesn't think he's up to the task. He's so young, he's so small. Surely he can't hang with the big guys. And... It's in that moment when he's confiding with Ron about that, actually, when Hermione gets up from a little park bench and runs over to Harry, pulls up side by side, inserts herself into the conversation with the two of them in a very charming way, and some might even say a forceful way, uh, and she says this. But I've never even played Quidditch. What if I make a fool of myself? You won't make a fool of yourself. It's in your blood. Tell me your father was a seeker too. I didn't know. I think what I like about the way she's so assertive in this moment is how there's two things going on that really work for him for me here. One is that it's kind of the same idea we talked about. God knows us better than we know ourselves. She continues to know things about Harry that he doesn't know about himself. Yeah. But but it's more than that. It's not just that she knows about him and who he is and who his dad is and why he is legit to play for this Quidditch team. It's also that she wants him to know what he needs to know at the right time. So she's not leveraging her knowledge against him or, or even just making it unuseful. She is telling him what he needs to hear in an encouraging, honest, sincere way. Uh, this idea that, like, God through his word provides meaningful sustenance and encouragement and the bible isn't just something that we want as believers it's something we need it's like food for us you know it's the energy that keeps us going Mm -hmm. living this countercultural life as we get to know god it it draws us to him right the bible promises that scripture works through us of its own power through the spirit's power and so this idea that like hermione has this knowledge but she's also going to like use it to better harry like it's not just existing in a vacuum here are some verses that came to mind for me Uh, In this first verse, um, actually these first two, a slightly different element, talking about how Harry's actually afraid that he's going to make a fool of himself, right? And so that's kind of the setup for Hermione's quote. But let's kind of dig into the setup there. Harry's afraid he's going to be like looking really stupid in front of all his friends. And I think there's a clear parallel to sort of like 
the Christian life in that regard. Like, you want me to surrender my life to a God that I physically can't see? Like, I'm going to look like an idiot. Like, I think Christianity today, in a lot of ways, it, it feels like intellectual suicide, or especially at colleges and universities. It just feels like you're signing yourself up for sort of, if not persecution, like a lower reputation, right? Um, like you're the fool in the classroom or on a sports team or whatever. And so, but the, listen to these verses and how, how they talk about the wisdom of God differently. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men." And the passage goes on, but this idea that like God's wisdom is foolishness to the world and what's foolishness in the eyes of the world is, is wise to those who know God. Mm-hmm. This idea that like Jesus flips everything upside down in salvation intellectually, um, as far as our head knowledge of salvation. Uh, and we see kind of the same thing. Like it's, it's again, it's the sentiment of like, I'm going to look like an idiot if I become a Christian. And that's what I see sort of Harry saying here. Like, I can't do this. Like I'm too young. I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to make a fool of myself. It's just a lot of fear and anxiety and worry and concern of what people will think of you, fear of man. This is Matthew 16, and this is Jesus just speaking straight truth here. This is the hard truth. Mm -hmm. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so do you see what Jesus is kind of saying there? Like, it is what you think it is. Like you are going to lose your life. You are giving up yourself, but in doing so, you're going to find it and you're going to get in, you're, you have everything to gain, but you just don't know it. So the sense of like, you are maybe going to look like a fool. Uh, a pastor that I'm really close with is going through a sermon series on second Peter right now. And he has titled the sermon weird in a good way. And it's all about how, like, if you're sort of living as Christ wills, you're going to be weird to the world, but you're going to be weird in a good way. And people are going to be attracted to that. And I think, Harry is sort of feeling that anxiety of like, maybe I don't want to be weird. You know, maybe I just want to be normal. Uh, but lastly, and this is kind of going back to where we started with this point, the idea that like uh, Hermione not only knows things about Harry, but knows the right things to tell him at the right times. Like the Bible encourages us by telling us who we are. And specifically here we get the father-child parallel. This is Galatians 4. And because you are sons, Paul is writing, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so when we go to scripture, we can hear truths about who we are in light of the gospel. And I think that is sort of what Hermione does here. She says, look, you're not going to make a fool of yourself. You're the son of James Potter. Let me show it to you. And she goes and shows him the sort of Hall of Fame trophy case. Remember that? It's got Mm -hmm. his name on it. Seeker. And I actually, fun fact, Lindsay Ruffalo showed this to me the other day. Minerva McGonagall, or someone McGonagall, is also on that plaque. A little Easter egg if you're watching. But, uh, yeah, this idea that, like, Hermione is able to use her detailed knowledge of who Harry is to his advantage, to encourage him, to uplift him, to remind him of his identity and purpose. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. 
Um, and I know Hermione is your favorite character in the series, and you have you know a special affection for her. Goat. Um, she is, yeah, the goat. goat. And you, you, goat. you, some might say the most Christ-like figure here. We'll see. I, I got a quick question for you. I don't know if this is the hot take or not, but um, I feel like Hermione in a lot of ways embodies Old Testament law, right? Like something that is like head knowledge, right? Something that is like righteous and good and useful. But there's also the stumbling block of legalism. And you see that with the character of Hermione throughout Harry Potter is like, I'm going to bed before, you know, you get us all killed or, or worse, expelled. Exactly. Right. And like, you know, Harry and Ron seem to have this certain proclivity for like breaking the law and potentially like doing the righteous thing, even if it's a little bit rowdy. Um, and so like, I, you know, do you think that Hermione uh like how do you think she walks the line between like doing what is good and and righteous and like legalism and do you see her kind of strut that line at all yeah absolutely that's a phenomenal question i think there's certainly a lot of self-righteousness and i don't think it's even remotely intended to be hidden from us i do think she gets a little bit more moral in that regard as the series goes on but she definitely represents the goody two-shoes who is kind of a know-it-all and, and at times sort of not helpful in some ways. Don't you two read? You know, those types of lines that are, <laughs> right, that yeah, are yeah. They're honest, honestly kind of condescending in some ways. Uh, but I think, and this is a good opportunity for us to briefly zoom out about what this podcast is about, is it's cool when you can sort of, the beauty of putting on these gospel glasses when you watch movies or listen to music is that you can be a little bit selective. Like you can take the good and leave the bad if it's not helpful in a way that I don't, you know, when we read the Bible, we submit to scripture in all of its truths and Mm -hmm. we take it as it is. But when we go into the secular world and watch a movie, I can say, Oh, I love that Hermione does this. This is so Christ-like. And I don't have to be bogged down by the fact that she has a flaw elsewhere. Um, if that makes sense. So I guess in a, in a way, what I'm trying to say is like, I feel like her highs are higher, even if she has just as low lows as everybody else. Sure. Uh, so I, I think you're totally right, though. There's definitely a lot of self-righteousness and sort of uh, moral superiority that's actually moral inferiority in that regard. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're obviously we're all broken and sinful people, and there's a Pharisee in all of us, and I think there's maybe a little bit of a Pharisee in, in Hermione, uh, but I think that's, you know, why we love her. It's like, you know, Hermione's not Jesus, and Hermione is not the savior of the Harry Potter universe, and, like, that is that is okay, but... I don't know. I, I agree. We can definitely still like see so much of the gospel through how she loves Harry and comforts him and walks alongside him and, and offers him truth. Totally. Yeah. It's one of those things where like I can remember the good and f- almost like for- trick myself into forgetting about the bad parts of her so that when I'm sort of like imagining my personal relationship with Jesus, I can like literally kind of imagine Hermione in some ways. That might sound weird, but like uh, I would say a lot of my time with the Lord is like trying to sort of like imagine what Hermione would say to me in this moment. Uh, and, and I don't have to, like, I can leave that sort of moral superiority and self-righteousness behind when I do that, I guess. But, yeah, great question. Sure. Um, I think I got one more point. Okay, this is, again, a broader concept, and I'm going to save kind of more of my scripture, like, specific stuff for the awards part. Um, but the the character of Quarrel uh, here, right? Like Quarrel. 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 <laughs> the, the unlikeliest of villains, right? This guy who's got this you know, speech impediment. He's really nervous. He's kind of uh, not very sure of himself. He's awkward. 
Um, but ultimately, like, Quirrell is the agent that Voldemort, the uh, villain of the film and of the franchise, like, uses to infiltrate Hogwarts and to fight against Harry. Um, and how, like, that's kind of an interesting parallel for how Satan and how sin works in the world. And so you'd think that, like, you know, off the bat, it's got to be, like, Voldemort himself that comes after Harry, right? And it's got to be, like, you know, Voldemort in his full power is coming to, like, strike down the Chosen One who has the one opportunity to defeat him. Well, it's a little bit, it's a lot more subtle than that. We actually don't see a very powerful Voldemort in the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Like, he's kind of, he's sucking on the unicorn blood to stay alive, and then, you know, he's in the back of the head of Coral looking all creepy and such. Um, but really, like, how the the devil himself, like, uses humans as instruments of evil in the world and how like there's you know it can flip the other way right like individuals who choose to submit to jesus like walk in uh like the the predestined worksmanship that like he designed for us to do but it also goes the other way as well um and so like we're set up this entire book to believe that it's snape it's gotta be snape like the clearest most evil (laughs) character like it's gotta be snape who's the one who's after harry and it's Quirrell. Um, and I think there's something to be, to, to be said there that like a lot of times sin doesn't come in these like fascist dictators. Like when, you know, I'm not looking for like Kim Jong-un or like Bin Laden when I'm looking for sin, like it's a lot more subtle than that. Um, and, and I don't know, I feel like Coral kind of represents that. Like it, it can be like, honestly, like the weakest, uh, like perception, but in reality, like even though we're like weak vessels, we're incredibly like weaponous when like given into those like uh, I guess sinful desires. Yeah, that's so well said. I thought about that parallel. I think that's a great one, and also kind of more broadly philosophically, the idea that like goodness and, and the the traits that God embodies like have an essence of their own like god embodies those things and he has his own essence but that evil on the other hand it's not this dualistic like they're completely even like evil and satan's work is is really only like the thwarting and the corruption of the good like voldemort has to be on the back of quirrell's head like he can't have the figure of dumbledore like they're not equals you know Hmm. and and i guess there is yeah, I, I'm honestly starting to sort of double think that a little bit because, like, there are traits that are at, at direct odds, right? Like, goodness and evil are in direct odds with each other, biblically speaking. But, like, this idea that, like, the evil can't even exist without the good, like, God enables or allows it, you know, on some level. And I kind of see, I think, you know, Quirrell, it's the same thing. It's like, mm-hmm. he's not this massive bin Laden. Like, he is sort of, like, corrupting something else. And it's subtle and it's sneaky and it's deceptive. All right, we are running low on time, so I'm actually going to skip my final one because it is the same as one of my awards. So, And we're also going to skip the free-for-all because we're low on time. This is our first ever episode, and we're working out the kinks. So Absolutely. Let's head to the awards. Our first up is the Lazarus Award, which is given to the moment. Moment broadly defined as a line or a scene or a character or a theme that is most sort of high-key gospel, big picture, Lazarus raised from the dead, central chapter in the Gospel of John. This is an unmissable, unmistakable gospel moment. What is your Lazarus Award winner? Ooh, okay. Well, this is kind of piggybacking on what we were talking about, um, but it is the moment uh, when Harry is... Uh, he has the you know the philosopher if you're in if you're in uh, England he has the sorcerer's stone and and Voldemort through quarrels like give it to me give it to me uh, and when 
Quirrell slash Voldemort tries to touch him, his hand burns, right? Like there's something so like special about Harry and there's some like special protection that he has around him. Um, and, and I think the idea, and, and Dumbledore kind of hits on this in one of the final scenes when he's in the hospital with Harry, he's like, why couldn't Quirrell touch him? Like, why did he literally burn when he touched him? Um, and, and Dumbledore talks about the sacrifice that Harry's mom made, right? Like Harry, uh, Harry's mom was holding him when uh, Voldemort struck her down and like there was a special magic that grasped Harry in that moment, uh, which Dumbledore describes as love, right? Like love is like, it emerges as this incredibly important concept within the Harry Potter universe. Um, and because of the presence of that love, like death doesn't have domain over Harry. Like Harry almost is immune to it in, in this crazy way. And so the scripture I pulled, uh, pretty simple is Romans eight, two, uh, it says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And so because like Harry has experienced this incredible sacrifice from his mother, like that sets him free from the grasps of sin and death in a way that uh, it hasn't set other people free from. And Harry did nothing to earn this. It was something that was bestowed upon him. Um, it's an incredible sacrifice and I think really reflective of like what Jesus did for all of us. And like while we experience the consequences of sin and death in our world, they're ultimately like temporary um, in comparison to the glory that like Christ is going to reveal in us uh, when he returns again. That is so well said. And I could barely keep myself from laughing because we put almost the exact same thing. <laughs> uh, great minds think alike and uh, former independent study classmates. Let's think go alike baby as well. But uh, I actually am glad you took it in the better direction. Cause I actually think I missed it by a touch because I took it in a slightly different shot. I said, Jesus defeats death by doing the one thing we couldn't do just as Harry defeats Voldemort by being the one person that could find and use the stone and not use it for ill. Mm -hmm. So remember in that post climax scene, like you said, Dumbledore in the infirmary where he's sort of like only somebody who, uh, what could use the stone, but not want to use it for ill is able to touch it. And, and this idea that like, in some ways that stone sort of representing like the perfect moral life. Like Jesus was the one person who lived the life that we couldn't live. And so like Harry is the one person who can like get to the stone and not use it for ill. And that's why it doesn't burn him as well. Mm -hmm. But I, I like your take better because it ultimately is Lily's sacrifice. That's a more explicitly gospel moment. And that love, love Harry. I'm actually a little bit bummed that I didn't throw that in there. But the, the verse that I, picked for this is what's known as like the Messiah poem from Philippians 2, uh, which is actually a quoting of other scripture. But this is Paul writing about Jesus or quoting about Jesus, I guess, uh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This idea that like, the one person with all the power in the world lays it all down. Like Harry can get the stone, but he's not going to use it for ill. And that's why he is able to defeat Voldemort. So that's my Lazarus Award. Sounds like we have the same one. Let's move on to the Mary Magdalene Award, which mm. represents the most low-key gospel moment, uh, referencing the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is sort of like doing a lot of things, but Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just attentively 
listening to him and being with him. And I think that is what we want to be as movie viewers. We want to be attentively listening, and we don't want to miss the small moments where we see truth, goodness, and beauty. So without further ado, your Mary Magdalene Award winner. I think it's going to go back to the beginning for me, and we talk about how Harry's entry into the wizarding world feels inevitable, but there is, at the same time, a choice to go. And I think it's interesting that there is never explicitly a moment when Harry's like, all right, I'm going. He just kind of follows Hagrid and gets pulled along in this journey. And so that reminds me of John 1, uh, when you know Jesus meets his first couple disciples, and uh, specifically John 139, when the disciples, before their disciples, asked Jesus, like, where are you staying? And Jesus just says, come and see. And there was never like a verbal affirmation from the disciples that like, okay, I'm going to go follow Jesus right now. It was simply like their curiosity that led them into like the greatest journey of their lives and the journey that would define the rest of their existence there on earth and like for for all of eternity. And so what Harry really does here is like he just says yes. This entire adventure has already been planned out for him, right? Like he's already the chosen one. Um, He's going to encounter like all these different trials along the way, but he just says yes and he goes and a lot of times like we i think as humans are looking for all the answers right like we want to know where we're going and what we're going to encounter and if we're fully equipped for like whatever tasks and challenges lay ahead and harry really like doesn't know what he's getting himself into he just says yes because he trusts that like what hagrid says about him is true and so i think like the gospel moment for me is that like we we don't know what the rest of our lives are going to look like following Jesus or like wherever he calls us to, but are we like trusting that voice that, that is good and true and is like telling us that we are made for something greater than ourselves. Um, and so that would be my Mary Magdalene moment. So well said, throwing heat right there. And I would even add just to clarify in that little voice specifically being like scripture, like that is how we know what God is saying to us. And that's like the equivalent to me of like what Hagrid says about us. Although I guess it doesn't have to be always scripture. It could also be like scripture has passed through a friend or like sure, yeah. someone someone who does believe. But yeah, that that is really compelling. I might have to vote for that. My Mary Magdalene Award nominee, I guess, is just Hermione aiding Harry every step of the way throughout this movie. But if I had to pick a specific moment, it's the Oculus Repero from the start that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Just restoring sight to the blind the metaphor of physical vision for spiritual vision and relational vision, being able to help the other parties see what they're unwilling to see, even if that means risking the friendship at times. I think about Goblet of Fire, like, are you willing to tell a hard truth knowing you might lose a friend to do so? That is a great, great theme. So Mm. let's move on to the Paul Award, which goes to the most biblical argument made by the film. Here I'm thinking about Paul writing Romans, what we might have is the most sort of doctrine- PhD level sort of uh, logical argument for the gospel and how it works. So the Paul Award, most biblical argument the Sorcerer's Stone makes. Go. Yeah, I, I mean, we spent a lot of time in Romans already, but I think Romans 8.28 kind of encompasses it for me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so maybe it gets a little bit further back into that predestination Calvinism kind of argument. But Harry's been chosen to go on this journey and like certainly not like every single moment is gonna like be okay right like he experiences a lot of suffering and pain over the course of this series but ultimately like there are forces of good that are working within harry and like there's this narrative that is so much grander than himself that is that he is being pulled into um and i specifically like chose this verse uh for for sorcerer's stone because sorcerer's stone is 
is the doorway through which we get into the rest of the Harry Potter universe. Um, and so like we're, we're seeing Harry called to be the person that he was designed to be, um, to step into like this grander plan. Um, and like, sometimes we, we think about like the idea that when we're called, you know, when God says he works for the good of those who love him, that like only good things are going to happen to us. Um, and we, we know like as believers that like, that's not true, right? Like we still experience the consequences of sin and pain in the world. But even like in the midst of that, there's this broader big picture trajectory where, trajectory where we can look back and see the ways in which like despite the pain and brokenness that we experience like god steps in and uh what you know what death meant for evil he made good um so i would say like that's kind of my broader idea that i pulled away for for the paul moment here that's great i love that uh just for sake of time i'm going to speed over to mine although there's a lot of things i'd like to add to that but this is the last sort of gospel moment that I actually didn't get to say in our sort of main meat section and it is all about the sorcerer's stone and this question of like is immortality actually what we want Voldemort contrasted as a character versus Dumbledore Voldemort sort of like clinging on to eternal life as like the goal especially as we get further into the series and Deathly Hallows like the worst thing that could possibly happen to him is he dies like he's got to cling desperately to his life yeah but this idea that like maybe that's actually not what's best for us like maybe immortality isn't really what we want at the end of the day like maybe no suffering isn't maximum happiness like maybe we want community joy fellowship approval identity purpose and above all to know and be known and we really get this hashed out in the harry dumbledore final conversation where Dumbledore was like, I've had a little chat with Nicholas Flamel, and we are going to destroy the stone. Uh, and basically this idea that like Dumbledore knows too, humans do not know what's best for them, and we make terrible choices. And that is a line Dumbledore uses in the book. I don't have it in front of me, but he basically says, uh, you know, the funny thing is humans are have a knack for choosing precisely the things that would bring about their own ruin. And kind of that tragic irony idea of like, we just don't know what's best for us, and we undermine ourselves. And so ultimately, like, the quest for eternal life being a godly thing and something that Jesus provides through salvation, but like the quest for like mortality, never ending life on this earth and our current bodies, like ultimately we're looking for something that cannot be found. So that to me is like a very biblical argument that this movie makes of like, there's more to life than wanting more life, but actually the true heroics and fun of the sorcerer's stone is that harry is grafted into a new community with new friends and a new sense of identity and purpose and it's not just he's going to live to be 300 years old in the dursley's house but if he dies at age 50 and lives the life he does starting at hogwarts like he'll actually be way more fulfilled hmm. yeah no I, I think that's fantastic um and i think i actually would kind of add it at another point here um and it's the idea that like Harry is able to acquire the Sorcerer's Stone because he like he desires it, but not because he wants to use it. Like he he wants the stone in and of itself, not like what the stone can do for him. And so I think the same is like with Jesus. Like there are even I'm sure like many believers in the world who choose to like accept Jesus as their savior because he can offer them like eternal life and this like you know pie in the sky when you die kind of idea. When in reality it's like. I, the the Bible is a love letter, and the hope is that like not that we would fall in love with Jesus because of what he can offer us, but simply because of who he is. And like Harry values the stone for what it is, not for for what it can give him. And I don't know. I think that's a really cool and powerful idea. 
Yeah, that's. T- I'm so glad you added that. That really like rounds out that idea more fully. Um, okay, moving on to our second to last award, the False Prophet Award. This is the antithesis of the Paul Award. This is the least biblical argument or most anti-biblical argument that the film makes. <laughs> what do you got for us, Graham? What's anti-biblical about the Sorcerer's Stone? All right, I'm gonna go actually uh, w- with a little uh, a little thing about the Mirror of Eris said. Um, and so, you know, Harry goes and finds the mirror of Erised and he sees his parents in it. And, you know, Ron sees himself uh, and, and Hermione sees himself. And, they, and everybody kind of has their different desires, right? And in the movie, um, there's a scene where Dumbledore he goes and finds Harry staring at the mirror of Erised, seeing his parents. Um, and Dumbledore says, uh, the happiest man in the world would look in, in that mirror and see nothing but himself. Um, and I actually think this is a, is a false idea um, because uh, it seems to frame like the idea of desires as being bad, like inherently evil. And I actually don't think that the Bible says uh, desires are inherently evil. Like what is our greatest desire as humans that is like good and godly? And it's to be in relationship with Jesus and experience a life that comes from that. Um, and so like the mirror of Erised seems to kind of, be presenting this idea of like it just shows us what we like want to be happy and the hope for like not desiring anything as kind of like you know Dumbledore saying the happiest man in the world would desire nothing not desiring anything is actually more of a Buddhist idea I would say than a Christian idea at all um and so like you know a lot of Buddhism is about um like you know quelling suffering right like not experiencing suffering in the world uh, which is really just like hedonism, right? Like I just want to be so happy. And Christianity is not about being happy and having everything that you desire. It's about like experiencing the life that was that you were made for um, in life and relationship with Jesus. And so, like, you know, not every Christian is gonna die and be like, "That was the happiest life I could have lived." Like, you know, all but one of the disciples were crucified, right? They didn't certainly live the happiest life. But there's something deeper and richer, um, something joyful that wells up, like when you choose to lay down your life to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and so I think the mirror of Erised is actually kind of directing us the wrong way here. Yeah, that's well said. I think the, it's, a, it's a lie, like you said, but I think the reason it's a compelling lie is because what is biblical about it, if I had to affirm and critique, is that this idea of like you don't need to compare yourself to other people and like there is a version of you that can be the happiest version of you that mm-hmm. is like rooted in a biblical seed of like Jesus can bring about the version of you that is more fulfilling but it, it kind of falls on deaf ears a little, like a little bit like Frozen 2 which I'm sure at some point we'll get to on this podcast mm-hmm. but this idea that like you are the one you've been waiting for your entire life like it's a compelling lie because it's true in the sense that like God wants to sanctify you into the person you were always made to be but it's it's absolutely not true in the sense that like you can achieve it of your own right, accord yeah. and that like you start off that way you know we're born into sin not into life um so that's that's really well said like and it is such a compelling environment it feels so philosophically brilliant it's Dumbledore right right? so we're so inclined to believe him that like he knows what makes people happy because he's usually right and and just like Satan like you said like the subtlety of like if you throw a frog into boiling water it jumps out but if you throw it into like lukewarm water and slowly turn up the heat like eventually it dies like the lies that are sort of like can get us on board halfway are way more compelling than the ones that we outright know to be false so, yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, okay, my False Prophet Award goes to the Harry-Draco rivalry and the Gryffindor-Slytherin rivalry. I just feel like... And, and, you know, maybe the movie does sort of say that these things are unhealthy and they're toxic and that, like, ultimately it undermines the people who engage in them. But this idea that, like, getting back at your enemies, it's not just, like, okay, it's, like, a good thing and it, like, shows your dominance. There's something good about this, like, don't let yourself be walked all over, but, like, kind of this whatever you want to call it alpha male contest of like getting neville's remember all or like winning the house cup or whatever you don't see a lot of like to to die is gain you know to like lay down your life is like like losing the house cup there can be great honor in that you know it's totally all about like winners win and like winners get dubs and like if you're anybody then you're trying to win you know and it's like that is kind of continues throughout the series this idea that like I don't know. I'd, I'd argue for more of a Hufflepuff ideal of sort of like how you do things and why you do things is ultimately like a more sincere and apt measurement of your heart than like the outcome. So maybe like process over results. I don't I don't think I communicated that very well, but um, basically like how do you treat your enemies? Like do you love them? Right. Do you yeah. celebrate their successes or are you jealous of them? Are you envious of them? Are you proud of and are you is that pride wounded when they defeat you like like it's just a great litmus test that i think ultimately most of the characters in harry potter fail and even i think the writer and directors fail yeah and i think i think that's a really great point especially when you contextualize it with the development of harry and draco's relationship throughout the rest of the series right and you know at at the book end of the series and you know obviously we don't want to get ahead of ourselves but like harry Harry's attitude towards towards Draco begins to change, and I think it's more like pitying him in a lot of ways. Uh, and we see like Draco continue to uh, be weakened and realize like he's not all that he thought he was. Um, and so I think yeah, I, I agree with you. I think like even throughout the end of the book, I wouldn't necessarily say that like Harry and Draco reconcile. Uh, necessarily but I, I agree like even in you know the prisoner of Azkaban scene like Harry's not worth it like getting into a you know of her, her no actually I think Harry Ron says that to Hermione when uh, you know she wants to go fight Draco so yeah, yeah I think there's definitely something there yeah and to be clear I don't want to say that Draco's not a good character or that like you shouldn't have characters who are morally flawed like I understand that conflict is the basis for meaningful character arcs and plot driving techniques and like it's so essential to story like conflict drives it all right and and this is good conflict what i'm saying i don't like is that the decisions that are made don't have consequences like uh when harry breaks the rules clearly and flies when he's not supposed to in madam hooch's or professor hooch's flying lesson instead of being punished for it when mcgonald's like potter come with me instead he gets like promoted onto the quidditch team and it's like I guess it's interesting on a story level because it's like a surprise. Like we think he's getting in trouble, but oh, surprise, like he's actually going to be on the Quidditch team. But to me, it's like a world where uh, bad decisions don't have consequences or in that moment, at least, as opposed to more of like a Game of Thrones thing where it's like if you make a wrong decision, like you might die. Like yeah. like real decisions have real consequences. And, and in here, it's like the breaking of the rules is kind of glorified, I guess. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, I hear you. But it's just an, it's a minor nitpick, and I think that's something that we'll see broadly across many films over this podcast is sort of like the glorification of revenge. Certainly more of the Marvel and like superhero type stuff, it's very much sort of like, can you one-up your enemy? There's there's very little like humility and like what does it mean to like lay aside your own desires? I think we see it in Thor, but not much of the rest of the MCU. Mm. Yeah. 
Sure. Okay, last wrap it up the Jesus Award for the most Christ-like character. Who do you got? Uh, this may be coming out of left field a little bit, but I'm going to take Hagrid. Um, I think Hagrid is such an essential character in wow. Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, maybe a little bit of a side character here, but really he's the person that like Harry that comes knocking on Harry's door, right? He's the person that uh, takes Harry uh, to Hogwarts. He takes him shopping. He, he tells him who Harry is, and I think that's really the essential role of Hagrid in this story. And even though he is deeply flawed, and there's the whole plot line with the dragon's egg and you know, accidentally telling Voldemort how to lull fluff, Fluffy to sleep, but um, Hagrid is the one who like tells Harry who he is, and he's the one who like invites him into adventure with him. And I know like we talked a lot about in our, in our independent study, I got really into Joseph Campbell who writes, um, wrote this book in the 1940s called uh, a hero with a thousand faces. Uh, and he kind of, uh, presents this archetype of the hero's journey, wherein somebody somebody's in their normal world. There's somebody or something that calls them into this new exciting world. Uh, and honestly, this like mirrors the, the plot line and the archetype of Jesus in the gospels. But, um, Hagrid really is like the invitational figure. He's kind of the catalyst, I would argue, that like really launches Harry on this this broader journey. And I just love the way that he loves Harry and loves Harry's friends. Yeah, that's well said. I love the Joseph Campbell connection. Definitely, sort of like nails the archetype. Uh, that's just I, that's such an underdog pick. I honestly have so much respect. <laughs> I feel like to pick that over Dumbledore is pretty bold. Sure. Um, because I felt like I was being bold and not giving with Dumbledore. I went with Hermione, probably not a surprise to you. I just feel like <laughs> when I think about my relationship with God, I think of it as in almost like two ways. There's kind of like the vertical, like looking up to God, like God as creator, God as judge, God as sovereign ruler and orchestrator of salvation and all these really, really big, almost incomprehensible titles. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the lateral and like there's like the human Jesus God, the relational, the God that is there for you in your highest highs and your lowest lows the God that cares about every little detail of your life and is singing your praises to the angels just because he loves being with you and is and watching your highlight reel on mixtape and, and your low light reel on mixtape. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and to me, that's Hermione for Harry. She's just there for them. Every, every single step of the way, she's there for him, loving him well, ultimately right before the climax, giving him the words he needs to sort of face the final battle or the final battle, the Joseph Campbell, the dragon, whatever you want to call the final Slaying stage. Slaying the dragon. Like, yep. Slaying the dragon. She's kind of like the, the last push of, and Harry, just be careful, you know, this kind of like, you're a great wizard, you really are, uh, just like relentlessly there for him, as we'll see throughout the series, like she's she's got his back, she knows him better than he does, and I think similar to Hagrid, probably not quite as much, but kind of plays a little bit of an invitational role as far as mediating between him and maybe the more social side of Hogwarts, less so like the big picture hero's journey side, uh, but helps him piece things together, helps him make not stupid decisions, counsels him against rash actions, whether he takes it or not, very Jesus to me in every way, so that is it uh this was a lot longer than expected but (laughs) great stuff uh sadly we have to stop discussion there but before we close here is a quick shout out to all of our supporters on patreon that helped make this podcast possible helen webster jacob derizio and my lovely fam craig carlock courtney carlock Kristen carlock thank you so much for (laughs) your support Right now, if you give $1 a month, you will be a top 10 supporter of this channel. <laughs> Believe so if it you or have not. literally <laughs> any interest at all, you can be a core member of this fandom right now. 
If you'd like to support the Jesus and Movies podcast, please do so at www.patreon.com slash Kevin Carlock. You can find access to exclusive content as well as weigh in on what movies we should discuss next. Ask questions you'd like answered on future, co- on future podcasts by communicating directly with me and show guests. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus and Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. We'll see you next time.